Thank you, Jill. I'm so looking forward to being dunked, guys. It's going to be awesome. Hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here today. We are in a four-part series through the book of Ruth. Pastor Lloyd did chapters one and two the last two weeks. Today I'm doing chapter three, and next week I'll do chapter four. It's been a great series so far. But I got to tell you, uh, when Lloyd first came to me and was like, hey, I think while Nick's gone, we should do the book of Ruth. Because Lloyd is my boss, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, book of Ruth. And in my head, I was like, what is that book about again? It's like kinsmen redeemers or something, or like some girl uncovers some guy's feet. But the more I've studied it, and you're going to get that joke later if you don't get it right now. But... <laughs> The more I've studied it, the more I've been moved by this book, and I'm so excited for what we're going to be talking about today. And everything we're going to be talking about today is kind of in light of what Bill prayed a little bit earlier about as the culture changes, we have a need to become the kind of Christians that we've always said that we were and always wanted to be. I uh, started walking with God a while ago, and when I first started walking with God, there was some really big things that changed in my life in a relatively short amount of time. That God came and helped me undo some patterns, some addictions, and some sin struggles. And I'm really grateful for how that happened, but I've noticed that the little sins, the little moral compromises, what Lloyd calls the quiet sins, are much more difficult to weed out of my life. They're much slower to change. And it's easy to be like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal and everyone else is doing this kind of thing. And if, if anyone else even knew about this, they wouldn't even think it was that big of a deal. And I think for a church like High Point, that is oftentimes our struggle is the little sins, the quiet sins, the sins that uh, people don't really hear about as much. I was talking to some, some of my friends earlier this week about this sermon and I was like, man, if I was preaching this at my old church, I would preach it so differently because they were like beating each other up there and like having affairs all over the place and it was just a mess. Everyone was a mess. So it's like, all right guys, let's like stop acting crazy. But We've got a lot of people here who have been walking with God for a long time. Some of you guys have been walking with God longer than I've been alive. And a lot of you are really sold out to follow Jesus. So it's, it's easy to be like, eh, maybe everyone's doing fine. But I think for all of us, there's that corner of our heart that we haven't given full control to God of. That there's this thing you're still kind of doing or saying or thinking that you know needs to change, but it's easy to be content in it because everyone around you is living the same way. The little moral compromises that there's really so much at stake in them. And this is what they feel like. They always feel like Eh, it's not that big of a deal in God's eyes. And then it always feels like there's so much at stake, so much to be gained or so much to be lost unless you make that compromise. Like you might say, yeah, I probably should spend a little more time at home. I probably should spend a little more time at work, but it's not that big of a deal. It's not at the point of ruining my marriage. And I got to pay for my kids to go to school and college is more and more expensive. And if I don't pay for them to go to school, they're going to have so much debt. Then they're going to come out with so much debt. And they're going to default on their loans. And they're going to live on the street and die. You know, it just feels like, oh, it's just not that big of a deal. And then there's so much at stake. It's the same thing in your marriage when you're like, you know, having some conflict and you're like, I, 
I probably should just forgive. I probably should just apologize. But it's not that big of a deal if I just give them the silent treatment for a little bit. And if I apologize right away, they're never going to change. You know, I got to teach them a lesson. Just not that big of a deal. And then there's so much to be gained. Another one for married people. I'm not married, but I have some married friends, and I know just enough of a marriage to be dangerous. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so this one's a little more serious. So oh, there's that person you work with of the opposite sex who's not your spouse, and you're like, you know, they make a little more money than your spouse, and they're a little better looking, and they know how to dress a little better, and they actually smell a little better, and it feels like they understand you a little more, and you know, you're just hanging out, and you're like, I probably shouldn't be so close to this person, but I know I'm not going to have an affair. It's not that big of a deal. And on the other side, you know, and my spouse just doesn't understand me. And my life is so boring. This is like the one relationship in my life that I look forward to, you know, to enjoying. It's just a little thing. And then there's so much at stake. It's the same thing for single people, you know, You're dating somebody and you're behind closed doors and tension's kind of running high and there's this thing in you. They're like, yeah, everyone is doing this kind of stuff. And if I break up with them, they're, you know, uh, or if I say no to this, they're probably going to break up with me. And then this is the last person I'm ever going to meet and I'm going to, I'm going to die alone. You know, it's always, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of death in these little moral (laughs) compromises. I don't know why. That's how our brain works a lot of times. And then it's the same thing with outreach. You know, I should probably tell this person about Jesus. I should probably start that kind of conversation. But is it that big of a deal if I just hold off? Or maybe someone else can do it. And then on the other side, you think, well, you know, what if I tell them and then they get really mad and then they never come to church and then they never want a relationship with God and then they go to hell and it's going to be all my fault. Like we can always find a really good reason to compromise on these little things. And it's the same thing with, like, everything. All the little compromises we make in terms of the time we spend, the time we want to spend with God, uh, you know, pornography, uh, your retirement years especially. No one is ever going to call you out on that. Like, hey, your retirement years are not just so you can, like, chill out for a long time. You still need to be serving God, but everyone's going to be really nice to you and be like, no, that's great. You've earned it. You've earned it. You've earned it. But there's more that we are meant Four. So here's what's at stake in this. I could tell you that the little moral compromise will become a bigger moral compromise and will become a bigger moral compromise and will eventually be something that will ruin your life. And that's sadly, probably, statistically going to be true for some of you in this room. That you're going to feel like this is not that big of a deal. And 10 years from now, you're going to be looking back and going, what was I thinking at the time? And when that happens, God will take you back. And this church will take you back. And any good church will take you back. And there'll be a way to to figure it out. But we would like to spare you from that, if at all possible. But here's the bigger reason. Here's the more important reason, because a lot of us, we can stay in these little moral compromises indefinitely, and they won't take over your life. But that is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if there's something that you're doing, that if Jesus was standing beside you, that you would do differently, 
That means there is something going wrong in your relationship with God because Jesus is just as much with us spiritually as he was with his apostles at the time. And if there's this thing that the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, you really, I know it doesn't feel like a big deal to you, but you really got to change this thing you're doing. And you're like, yeah, I'll deal with it later. I'll handle it later. That means you're not really interested in the Holy Spirit being Lord over every aspect of your life. That's a problem. It's a problem in your relationship with God. And that's the biggest, that's really the biggest issue. Biggest issue. It's not just what's going to go wrong. It's the fact that there's something going wrong in your relationship with God. So how do we deal? How do we deal with this? What do we do with it? And I think to really deal with it, you got to get at the underlying fear issues that are underneath the compromise. Part of the reason we compromise is just because we're miserable sinners and we're bent on self-destruction and we're bent away from God and we're filled with pride that draws us to these things. But a lot of times it is the fear of losing something that's actually something that God wants us to have or something good. A lot of times there's a fear connected to it that you'll lose you know, happiness or joy or affirmation or stability or security or relationship or intimacy, whatever these things, all these things that God wants to give us anyways, but it's out of fear of losing them that we're driven to these little moral compromises. And that's why I love this story that we're gonna look at because this guy Boaz, was faced with the smallest moral compromise that I can imagine. And there was so much at stake. And he just stayed right on the path, right in the middle. We're going to see what we can learn from that. So I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to open the scripture. Lord, I thank you for your presence with us today. I thank you that you speak through your word. God, I thank you that the effectiveness of this message is not dependent on my own personal holiness as a minister of your word, but it is dependent on the truth of your word. So I ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to move, that you would soften hearts and that people would be open to hearing what you want to say to them. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. All right. So we've been tracking along with the story of Naomi and Ruth and their journey. And uh, that's right, because that's how the book goes. But today I want you to think about this in terms of Boaz. Because from Boaz's perspective, here's what he's experienced. He's likely a single guy, middle-aged, pretty successful. He's got fields. He's got people work in his fields. And then this happens to him, that someone comes along in one of his fields gleaning. And gleaning was the practice that people would come and they would go behind the paid workers and pick up the scraps that were left over. And it was their way of surviving. It was kind of like a way of begging, but it was something that Boaz was all about because he wanted to help people who were in need. So this new gleaner comes along one day and Boaz takes note of her and he goes, who's that? And then he asks his workers, he said, who's coming in? And they said, oh, that's Ruth. She is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And now at this point, Boaz goes, oh, if she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi, that makes me what they call the kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. And that means he was in the line of people who were supposed to marry Ruth if her husband died and her husband had died. But here's also what Boaz knows. 
One, as we're going to see in a minute, we haven't seen this yet, but he's going to see that he doesn't really think she's going to be interested in him because she's young and he thinks she's beautiful. And he thinks she's got lots of options. So he's like, eh, she's not even going to want to be with me. And then he also knows there is someone more closely related to Ruth and Naomi than him. And in the law of God at the time, whoever was most closely related, for lack of a better terms, for lack of a better terms, would kind of have first dibs on that person. So he goes, okay, I'm not going to make a move. I don't think she wants anything to do with me, and there's someone else who's closer, so I'm going to feed her, I'm going to provide for her, and I'm just going to go on my merry way. Then one night, he has a, you know, a celebration with his people, and then this happens. Take a look at verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and was in good spirits, that does not mean he's drunk. It means he had some food and a beer or two, maybe, you know, just feeling a little loose and was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile, falls asleep. Then verse eight, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Some of you are like, this sounds like a movie I wouldn't want my kids to see. Like, what is going on in here? Well, here's what Boaz doesn't know, which we know if we've read this story before, but here's what happened earlier that day. Go back to verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. So Naomi, like any good mother or mother-in-law, is doing the best to set Ruth up with someone. And she says, I don't think Boaz realizes that he has a shot, and I don't think this has ever even occurred to you, Ruth, or maybe it has, but I think I can get these two together. I think I can get you two together. And then she comes up with a plan that for 3,500 years, no one can agree whether Naomi did the right thing or the wrong thing, because it's like kind of a sketchy plan. And if you've read Ruth, you probably have your own opinion, and I don't really want to hear it because I've been studying this like for a month now and I still don't know what I think and no one on staff could really make up their mind for sure. So you can just keep that opinion to yourself and know that you're right and I'm wrong, but that's fine. And I don't really know. All I know is that it was a plan and it was directed at getting Ruth and Boaz together and it ended up being a very effective plan. Here's the plan. Verse two. Tonight you will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Now you might say, okay, so like at the, in the culture at the time, did like putting on perfume and nice clothes like mean something different? No, it meant the same thing. It meant that Naomi wants Ruth to present herself as like, I'm interested in you, Boaz, but then it gets worse or better or whatever you think. <laughs> Here's what happens next. This is the, the plan continues. Then go down to the threshing floor but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Okay, then next. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. So don't go right away. Wait till he falls asleep. Then go and uncover his feet. And the uncovering of the feet, that sounds a little weird, but the point of that was that uh, if you whip the covers off someone while they're sleeping, they're going to wake up right away. But if it's cold outside and you pull the covers off their feet, they're going to slowly wake up. So she goes, just uncover his feet, let him wake up. And 
no, uh, here it is. Uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So that's the plan. And Ruth is like, I'm, a, I'm in. Let's do this. I'm on board. So she puts on perfume. She puts on her best dress. She goes in there. And that's where our story picks up. But Boaz doesn't know any of this. All he knows is that in the middle of the night, something startled the man. Verse 8. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. In verse 9, he says this, Who are you? He asked. Now, he didn't forget what Ruth looked like, but it's dark, and all he can see is that it's the shape of a woman, and he can smell the perfume, and he's like, Who are you? And then Ruth says this, this sentence that goes down in history. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Now, in the context of the field, where Boaz is the owner of the field, Ruth could have said, yeah, I'm your servant, you know, I'm here to glean. And he's like, yeah, go ahead and glean. But in the dark, with the perfume, I'm your servant, Ruth, has a little bit different ring to it. <laughs> I'm serious. This is in the Bible. You guys got to read the Bible. It's really good. <laughs> Great book. <laughs> so then she makes it really clear, though. She spells it out, and she says this. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And the spreading of the garment would have been a literal thing of him actually spreading part of his blanket or part of his clothing over her, but it also was a symbolic thing to signify that he was going to marry her, that he was going to play the role of the guardian redeemer. Ruth is literally proposing to Boaz in the middle of the night. And then look at his response. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Like, yeah. And Boaz is always blessing people, you know. He just loves to do it. He does it to his workers, and now he doesn't know what else to do in the situation. So he just, he says his favorite line. And then it just, it just completely goes off the rails from here. Look what he says next. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. And the kindness was the kindness that Ruth showed to Naomi when she left her homeland and left all her people and followed her mother-in-law to this foreign land where she likely was going to live in poverty and never be able to remarry and follow a new God, like everything in her life changing. And he says, you proposing to me is more kind than everything you did for your mother-in-law. It's like, boys, have some self-respect, man. Like, you're not that bad of a guy. That that would be, that, like, him, them getting married is worse for her than all the stuff she did for her mother-in-law. And then he says this, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. He's like, you could have gotten someone younger and richer than me. Like, what are you doing with me? And then he says this, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. And here's where the moment comes where he has a difficult choice. Now, you have to applaud him already that he doesn't have sex with her then, right? Because she's not even looking for a one-night stand. She wants to marry him, and he wants to marry her. They could have been like, let's just say we're married in God's eyes and just like do this now. But we hope that Boaz wouldn't be there because, you know, he's been a godly guy all along, and not having sex before marriage is like one of the things that... God commands really clearly in Scripture. It's one of the things that Christians like to pride themselves on, even though we're not always as good at following that law as we say that we are. But we hope that Boaz wouldn't just fall into that temptation. But here's the real powerful part of his unwillingness to compromise, is that this whole law of the other guardian redeemer 
he would, he would be keeping the spirit of the law to marry her. Because the point of the law was to keep widows from falling into poverty. Because the, the, it was not a good situation for women in that culture. It was very hard for them to make a living without the support of a guy just because of the way things were set up. So God made this law. Hey, if there's a widow, make sure the next person in line in the family marries them. And God wanted it to go in a certain order. But the point was to make sure that person didn't die. So Boaz would be well in the spirit of the law to say... Yeah, you know, of, there is this other guy who's closer, but we already like each other and we already have a relationship and she's already gleaning in my field and it's not that big of a deal. That same thing we face. It's not that big of a deal. It's just this little law and no one would even really judge me for it and then there's so much to be gained. But what does he do? Verse 12, he says this. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. And if it was me, I would say, so I'm glad I got to you first. But that's not what he says. Here's what he says. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Look at that word. Just complete submission to the law of God. If me obeying God means I lose you, good. Not because I want to lose you, but because I am fully submitted. I am fully devoted, like Pastor Lloyd talked about last week. I am fully devoted to the law of God. So whatever comes out of obedience, no matter how terrible it is for me, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. Can you imagine the fear in this moment? I mean, if he's single, this is potentially him signing up for a lifetime of singing list. That might be the last time that he meets someone. And then at the same time, Naomi likely knew that there was this other guardian redeemer because he was more closely related to Naomi than Boaz was. So for whatever reason, Naomi says, Boaz is going to be a better fit for Ruth than this other guy. And that means that likely Boaz thought the same thing. So he's also got the fear of, is Ruth going to be well taken care of by this other guy? He's risking not only his own fulfillment, his own satisfaction, but he's risking her and her own safety to follow the law of God. And then he's risking what she's even going to think of him in this moment. Like, she's from Moab. She's kind of new to this whole following Yahweh thing. And she's like, wait, wait, wait. Why can't you marry me? Like, what is going on? But he says, no. Whatever the cost, I'm going to follow the letter of the law. No matter what anyone thinks, I'm going to follow the letter of the law. No matter if anyone else would do the same thing in this situation. And this was at the time when the judges were ruling and Israel morally was a mess. And he was like, I don't care what anyone else's army is doing. I don't care what the cost. I'm going to follow the letter of the law. And come what may, I'm going to call it good. That is full devotion right there. So at this point, I start asking myself, what does Boaz know that I don't? You know? What does this guy see that I don't see? Because I feel like if I could understand what he understands, I would be able to stay on that path all the time. If he could do it when the stakes were that high. But I think the real question, stick with me, is what do we know 
that Boaz doesn't even know. Because Boaz doesn't know that he is in a story that is being written down in the Bible. And stories in the Bible are generally about things that God is doing. And if we zoom out a little bit, we go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's really no risk here because if God wants Ruth and Boaz to be together, he's not going to punish Boaz for being obedient. Of course, he'll just be able to find a way for it to work out. And if God doesn't want Ruth and Boaz together, there still is no risk because then if this other guy ends up marrying her, that's because that's the plan that God wanted to have happen. There's no risk. This is a story in the Bible. And he's being obedient. And I think Boaz knew that too. I don't think he knew that he was being written down in a story in the Bible, but he knew that God was in the background of his story. Just like God is in the background of your story. God is in the background of our stories. And Boaz knew that God was doing something good. Just like God is doing something good in our lives. And Boaz knew that God had a plan for his life, just like God has a plan for our lives. And this brings us to the point of the message today. This is the point that I'm praying that you remember and that you think about, even though it sounds really obvious and kind of stupid. Say this, say this out loud with me. God's plan never requires compromise. One more time, real loud. God's plan never requires compromise. God's God's greatest, most loving, most tell your grandkids about all the amazing things God did in your life plan. That kind of plan requires zero compromise on our part. Zero, amen, zero moral compromise. All that God wants to do in your life, all the greatest things, all the fulfillment, all the satisfaction, all of that can come to you without even the smallest bit of moral compromise. Do you know why? Because God's plans and God's demands are always in perfect harmony. Because God is not schizophrenic. There is no time where he's got this plan for your life and then he's got these moral demands and he's like, oh no, if they really follow what I've commanded them to obey, they're not going to be able to receive this good thing that I want them to have. You see what I'm saying? It may be that God has a different plan for you than what you'd hope for, but what God has planned for you never needs to be sought after by bending the rules even a little bit. You can be as lame and Christian and just staying in the center on everything and never trying to bend stuff and never trying to wiggle stuff and just saying, nope, this is just what I do. And people can make fun of you and talk bad about you and be like, what is that person's problem? And you will still receive exactly what God wants you to receive. I had to learn this lesson in my own life in a pretty dramatic way. So I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, don't worry, it does not include any threshing room floor scene or anything like that. It is uh, it's not that kind of story. And I also don't want to tell this story and have you think, wow, Vincent is such a great guy, such a godly guy, because I have morally compromised many, 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 many times and reaped many, many consequences in my life. So I could tell you just as many stories where I, where I uh, messed it up, but... In this particular story, I learned this truth in my life in a really big way. 
a few years back, maybe three years ago, I'm starting seminary. I'm super excited to be starting and following God into ministry. And I got this scholarship that helped me to be able to go to seminary. I would not have been able to go to seminary if it wasn't for this scholarship. And I'm taking a class by this professor at Trinity. And if you're like a theology nerd, he's like the famous one from Trinity. He's super famous and well-known in the conservative Christian evangelical world, which is not that cool of a world to be famous in. But... If that's your scene and you're wondering if it's that guy, yeah, it's that guy. So I'm taking this class with him and it's really hard as you would imagine. And we, we have these uh, quizzes like every other week and they got stuff on there like, where are these seven words found? What book and chapter of the Bible? And I'm like, I have no clue. I remember I got a 25% on one of the quizzes. That's the lowest I've ever gotten on anything in my entire life. So then the final's coming up, and he goes, here's these 20 essay questions. I'm going to give you five of them on the final, and that's it. That's going to be the whole final, like four or five. I don't remember the exact things, but something like that. And so we're all freaking out because we're like, if this guy grades so hard on the stuff that he doesn't give us in advance, like how hard is he going to grade these essay questions if he is giving them in advance? And then I start freaking out. I'm like, I got to keep this scholarship. I got to keep my GPA up to be able to keep the scholarship. Well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So then I go to my friend who took the class before and I say, hey, how much did you write for those essays? Like, did you write a lot? How'd you do? What kind of stuff did you put in there? And he goes, oh, well, I have my test from a couple years ago. Do you want to see it? And then I go, do I want to see it? I don't know. Is that right? Is that wrong? I mean, he already gave us the questions, but I guess that'll make us see how we grade. And I think it's just kind of always wrong to like see a test in advance. I didn't really know. And in the face of that, I don't really know. Is this a big deal? Is this wrong? Should I just ask him? I was like, and then all this fear over here, so much to lose. I go, I'm just going to look at it. So he shows me the test. I get some help from it. I study. I take the test. I do pretty well. Not super well, but oh, okay enough. And then uh, I forget about the whole thing until six months later. And I'm, uh, is this piece of tape falling off? Sorry, it's like really distracting me. You guys probably can't even see it, but we're just going to keep it there. Okay, anyways, six months later, and I'm praying. I'm reading the word, and I'm like, Lord, uh, you know, I'm excited to be following you in the ministry, whatever you want me to do. And then I read the part where Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I'm like, amen, Lord, I'm following you wherever you want me to go. And then this little voice says, what about that test? And I'm like, what test? They're like the test you saw in advance. I'm like, the one like six months ago? They're like, that one. And I'm like, well, six months ago, something I can do about it. Now the test is over, the class is over, nothing I can do. And the voice is like, you made a decision that you were not sure if was right or wrong, and it was not your decision to make. And if you want to follow me with moral integrity, you got to go tell that professor. And I'm like, there's no way. I'm kind of extreme with stuff like this. So some of you are like, whoa, you were like on another level of like being anal about moral compromise. And that might be true. But in that moment, I felt like this is what I had to do. But then I'm like, okay, but God, you want me to do ministry. You want me to graduate. You want me to get this education. You want me to be able to, you know, serve the church and all this stuff. And now I'm risking losing all of it. Because if, if I got a zero in the class, not only will I lose the scholarship, but I'm going to be kicked out of school. It's just this little thing and there's so much at stake on. There's so much risk. There's no way. There's no way. And I got to the point where I was like, maybe 
following God's path into ministry, maybe even that requires just a little bit of compromise. And then I was like, that is so stupid. There's no way. There's no way. Whatever God is playing for me, whatever my path is, it's not going to require even the smallest bit of moral compromise. And I'm like, maybe I'm supposed to get kicked out of seminary, you know? Maybe I'm supposed to do a ministry for cheating seminary students so I can tell them my story. <laughs> they look, don't go down that path I did. But I got to the point where I, I believed this for myself. I was like, God's plan never requires compromise. And then it was a lot easier. I was just like, what's the big deal? Whatever happens is fine. So I email his assistant, because I can't even talk to the guy. I email his assistant, because he's, he's like, he doesn't have office hours. So he like sets me up for something like three weeks in advance. Then I'm waiting for three weeks with this thing hanging over my head. I'm like, I'm about to kick out of school. I don't know what's gonna happen. I get in there with him. I tell him the whole story. And he like literally just stone-faced the whole time. No response. And then I finish and he's like, that's fine. <laughs> And I'm like, what? That's fine, that's it. He's like, yeah, you were just trying to study. That's passing on the academic legacy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then I was like, okay, maybe I overreacted to begin with. Maybe I was too intense about this thing, whatever. But the point was I learned a valuable lesson during that, that God's plan for my life does not require any compromise whatsoever. Let me end the Boaz story. Real quick, for those of you who don't know, most of you know, but just in case you haven't heard, Boaz decides the same thing. He decides to be faithful. He decides to walk the path. He goes to the other guy who's closer in line to Mary Ruth, the other guardian redeemer, and he says, and he does it in like the least manipulative way possible. He does it in the way I think that would most set him up for most likely losing Ruth because he doesn't want to bend, he doesn't want to manipulate the situation at all. He goes, because if someone married Ruth, they would also have to buy this plot of land that Naomi had. That was like part of the deal at the time and the land was actually pretty desirable. And he starts with the land. And he says, hey, Naomi's here. She's selling this plot of land. Do you want to buy it? And the guy goes, yeah, I would like to buy it. And then Boaz is like, no, 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 no. And then he's like, okay, if you want to buy the land, you also have to marry Ruth the Moabite. Do you want to do that? And he's just bracing. And then the guy's like, oh, no, I can't marry Ruth. That'll mess up my inheritance, which might have meant that he already had a wife and his wife wouldn't want him to have another wife, or it might have meant that he didn't want to split his inheritance with his kids. Whatever it was, Boaz is like, yes! And then he marries Ruth, and they get married, and they live happily ever after. And God opens Ruth's womb to conceive a child, even though she was barren all the 10 years that she was in Moab, married to her previous husband, because God was working in the story the whole time. And Boaz didn't need to compromise at all. Okay, so now the question becomes, how does this apply to all of us? How does this apply to all of you? Because you guys don't live your lives, and neither do I, in these like huge moral situations where there's tons at stake and you're super convicted. Most of it just kind of floats along. So how do you apply this to yourself? First of all, you have to understand that even the little moral compromises are not just not a big deal. Even if they don't have a snowball effect in your life, even if never, even if no one ever sees, even if no one ever knows, these are a big deal because every time you make a moral compromise, if this is true, you have a faith issue. 
There's something going wrong in your relationship with God. And even if the compromise never ruins your life or hurts anyone else, it means you are not trusting God. It means one of these two things. It either means that you think this, I don't believe God is strong enough to provide what he wants to give me. That means you know that your desires and God's desires are aligned. And you're like, I know God wants me to have these things. I know God wants me to do these things. I know I want them. But I don't think God is really strong enough to get me there if I literally live this super radical Christian life that no one else is living. And I don't bend on all these things that no one else is bending on. So you think you got to help God out a little bit because he's kind of weak. He's kind of... You know, and he doesn't really get it with the whole giving you his plans and then giving you certain demands that go hand in hand. You're like, God's kind of confused up there. He can't really have meant what he said, so I'm just going to bend a little bit. That is a faith problem. You don't believe God is strong enough. Listen, God is strong enough. He's big enough. The God that is not strong enough is a God that you made up in your head. You can be as radical a follower of Jesus, as militant about following his commandments as you possibly could, and God will be strong enough that he will give you whatever you're meant to have. It's true for every aspect of your life. And this is especially hard for pastors because we're like, I'm trying to lead this church. I'm trying to bring people to God, and it feels like there's so much going on, and you're like, I know God wants this, and I know I want it, and then you find yourself working yourself into the ground and working so many hours because you don't think God can really do it if you live a balanced life and keep focusing on your family. It's a faith problem for pastors. It's not a workaholic problem. It's not that they just really, really care. It's they don't believe God could take the amount of work that they provide and use it to do whatever wants God, whatever God wants to do them in his kingdom. It's the same thing that's true for you also when you work too many hours and you're spending too much time at work. If you're spending five hours past a healthy marriage, that is a faith problem. You see what I'm saying? Now it's one thing if you're like, you know, a single parent and you're working three jobs to survive. That's different. But if you are not on the edge of starvation and you are working five hours more than would make your marriage good, you got to stop working those five hours. That is a faith problem in your dating relationship. If you're like, yeah, the line is probably here and we're just a little bit over, but that's just the amount that makes me feel kind of like I still got a, a handle on this thing and I still got this person kind of where I want them. That is a faith problem. It is not a sexual desire problem. It is a faith problem. And you have to say, look, we can be the weird Christians that like just hold hands and it'll be fine. And if we're supposed to get married, it'll all work out. Same thing with spending time. Every time you spend time with God, it takes faith to know that the time is worth it and you wouldn't be better served doing something else. And you have to say, no, I'm just trusting that this time is worth it. But others of us, this is our, that's for some of you. Others of us, is this though. I don't believe God is good enough to give me the best life for me. And in this situation, you believe that God's plan never requires compromise. And you say, oh, I know that. I know that I could have exactly the life God wants for me without compromising at all. I'm just not really interested in God's plan. I'd like another plan. I would like a little bit better, the, better plan. I would like God's plan plus one or plus two. And so we say, okay, well, I'm just going to bend just enough to get a little more money, a little more attention, a little more affirmation, a little more of this, a little more of that, just because I know that if I walk the path with God, he would give me those things, but just not quite as much as I want. That is a faith problem. 
Because God loves you. He created you. He knows what you need. He formed you in your mother's womb. And the path that he has for you in the path of obedience will give you the exact life that you need. It may not be the exact life you want. It may not be the life that you think you need in the moment. But you'll come to the end of your life and you'll go, oh, that was exactly what I need. All the trials, all the pain, all the suffering, all the just difficulty that comes from obedience, you will look back and you will go, that was the exact life that God meant for me. Every time you make a moral compromise, even if you think everyone else in church is doing the same thing, even if everyone else in your small group is doing the same thing, even if everyone else in your age group is doing the same thing, that is always a faith problem that you do not believe what God says about himself because he is strong enough to give you what he wants to give you, and he is loving enough that what he wants to give you on the path of obedience will be the right thing every time. You gotta get back to basics too here, folks. I mean, Jesus loves you, okay? And that changes everything. The fact that God provided a way for you to have salvation before you were even born. He solved a spiritual problem that you had before you even knew you had the problem by sending his son to die on a cross. That means you can trust he loves you. And you can trust that his plan is the best plan. Because he provided for you in the deepest ways that you could ever imagine before you ever wanted it. He went out of his way and suffered for you so that he could have a relationship with you, so that you could spend eternity with him. That means I don't care how hard his plan is. It's the best plan for you. And guess what? Jesus rose from a tomb after he was killed three days later. That means God is sovereign over all things, and he is strong enough to give you what you need. You don't have to help him out. You don't have to bend. You don't have to push the boundaries whatsoever at all. So I want, I want you to try and go there with me and try to think of the last time you, you bent on something, that you compromised a little bit. What was the thing? But more importantly, what were, what were you afraid of losing? Relationship, intimacy, fulfillment, financial stability, your job, control, whatever it was, think about it. And then I want you to put it in this blank in your head right now. Because likely that thing in your head wasn't like a, I really wanted to kill someone. It probably wasn't behind it. You probably wanted something good. You probably wanted something that God on some level wants you to have anyways. You got to say, God's plan for my happiness Never requires compromise. And some of you have to emphasize this part, say, oh yeah, it doesn't require compromise. Some of you have to emphasize this part and say, God's plan as opposed to my plan. God's plan for my happiness never requires compromise. God's plan for my fulfillment. God's plan for my relationship. God's plan for my career. God's plan for my life never requires compromise whatsoever at any level. And you got to know if you can live like this, and it's hard, because the temptation to compromise is constant at work and at home, in your relationships all the time. It's constant. But if you can live like this, you get the satisfaction of knowing that you are in the center of the will of God. No matter how much money you're making, no matter how your marriage is, no matter how your kids are, even if they're not walking with God, no matter how your 
careerist, no matter how any of that is going, if you have found yourself in that place from walking a path of obedience with zero compromise, you have the confidence that you are in the center of the will of God. You are exactly where God wants you to be. And that brings a peace and a joy and a contentment that I wouldn't compromise on. Because I want that for my life. Okay, one, one more layer. One more layer for you to think about. And this is, this is so important. Because this isn't really about us at the end of the day. From the time of the Israelites to the time of the early church, the holiness of God's people, our ability to be uncompromising people, never really was just about us. It was always about our witness to the surrounding world. And like Nick has been talking about, we're in a very critical time in our culture right now where things are moving farther away from God and things that you just assumed 10 years ago, like people just kind of knew it was a good thing to go to church and it was a good thing to believe and it was a good thing, all these things. People just don't assume that anymore. And if we want to be a witness in this culture, people are going to have to get real close to you. They have to get real up close and personal because they're going to go, I don't buy any of that stuff. But you seem like you really buy it. So let me, get, let me get real up close and personal and look at the details of your life. Let me look at what you're doing in those things where you're tempted to do things that I don't even think are wrong, but you think they're wrong. So what do you do in those situations? And as they look at your life, if they see that you're compromising, they're going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me you believe that God is strong, that he can do whatever he wants to do, and you're telling me that your God loves you and you are still bending on the things that he's told you to do? You don't believe any of this. And they're going to be absolutely right. Maybe not that you have zero faith in God, but that if you really believe the things you said you would, it would affect everything down from the big picture down to the smallest details. But if they can come in there and they can see... Okay, you're like risking a lot and losing a lot for these little things that they don't even think are wrong. And even if they don't think they're wrong and they see you militantly following the law of God, they're going to be like, you believe that. And that's the start. If they can believe that you actually believe what you say you believe, that cracks people's hearts open. And they go, why? Why do you believe that? What difference does it make? Because you really believe that. You're not just following some religion. You're not just doing what your parents told you to do. You're not just going to church because it's convenient. You really believe in the God of heaven and earth. And you're going to say, yeah, I do. And yeah, it's cost me. And it's been a difficult road sometimes. But this path that I've walked has landed me exactly where God wants me to land. And then you see people come to Christ and you see people find God and you see people asking questions but it all starts with like what Nick said us becoming towers of virtue and this is exactly what he meant by that people of zero compromise even when the compromise feels so small and the risk or the reward of compromising feels so big that we would be people that stay on that path every single time let me pray for us Lord, I thank you for the people in this room and for their desire to be fully devoted to you. Lord, I pray that you would not let there be any contentment 
with our own spiritual maturity until we find ourselves in your presence in heaven. Lord, help us to rest in the fact that we are justified in your sight, that we are forgiven, that we are righteous in your sight, that we are seen the way you see Jesus in your sight. But Lord, in this world, help us not to be content in our sanctification. Help us not to be content in what you are trying to do in us and through us. Lord, help us to just keep saying yes to your Holy Spirit. Help us to live lives where if Jesus was walking beside us, we would walk exactly as we do now. And if the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do something, no matter how trivial, no matter how extreme it seems, no matter how high the risk and how, how trivial the compromise, Lord, that we would say yes to your Holy Spirit every single time. And let us be driven, God, by a desire to know you and to walk as you would have us walk. And also driven by the motivation that there is a watching world that wants to know if there is any hope if there is anything more than this life, if there's anything more than the here and now, and Lord, when they look to us, Lord, let our, let our lives give testament to the fact that there is more, that you are true, that you are real, that you are reigning, and that you have claim over every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. As we